Greenleft Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Greenleft Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Greenleft is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Hello and welcome to Green Left Radio um, on 3CR 855 AM. Um, I am Ari, I'm going to be one of your hosts today, and I am joined by... Me, Zane, and I am going to be your other host today. Yeah. And it's going to be festive. It's going to be great. Um, Before we get started, uh, we're going to, as usual, do the uh, acknowledgement of country. So 3CR and Green Left Radio this morning uh, broadcasted from the lands of the Wurundjeri people whose land was stolen by force and sovereignty was never ceded. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and as socialists we pledge to work with First Nations people in liberatory struggle, like stopping black deaths in custody and treaty and land back and that sort of thing. So, <clears throat> totes. <laughs> Thank <Yeah>. you, Zane. <laughs> um... Yes, and it's interesting, the wording of the voice referendum has just been released, mm. and there's some discussion about that. Uh, we had, uh, we played the forum that, that was, um, the forum with Lydia Thorpe that happened about uh, almost a month ago now, Yeah, and um, yeah, I think Lydia Thorpe made some really good points there, like whatever your position on the voice and i think there's um a range of arguments that should really be listened to but whatever your position on the voice i think lydia thorpe made a really compelling case that um black deaths in custody have been happening for decades it's been known about there's been the royal commission uh, Labor governments have been in power at a state and federal level and have not really substantively addressed that at all, and it continues to happen. There continues to be black deaths in the prison system and at the hands of police. Um, there is still an atrocious provision of basic services in Aboriginal communities in general, and particularly in rural Aboriginal communities, including housing, education, healthcare, the standard of those services are terrible compared to the um, already not that great standard that that is uh, enjoyed by the majority of the population in in major urban centres. Yeah, and it was mostly rural Aboriginal communities where they the Centrelink tested that um, Centrelink card thing where you couldn't actually get money out. And there were lots of reports of people not being able to use them because they didn't have the reception for credit card machines in the area and that sort of stuff. Hmm. So what, not only are the service provisions already bad, um, the government was trying to make them worse and testing it first on particularly remote First Nations communities, which hmm. um, is really indicative of the way that the kind of colonial power of the government still is still 
enforced in that way. Hmm. Um, but we have uh, some good interviews coming up on the program today. We've got Alex Bainbridge on to talk about the 20-year anniversary of the huge protests against the invasion of Iraq. Uh, we've got Amy Sargent on to talk about the, particularly the connection between the Nazis and the kind of turf slash gender critical movement, as we saw with the, um, protest against, uh, Posey Parker. And we've got Margaret Kelly on to talk about, um, the Barrack Beacon public housing estate and the, the so-called renewal project that's mm. broadly kicking everybody out of their homes and leaving us with less public housing than we started with. Mm. Um, but on to uh, something before we get to any of the interviews, onto the news and kind of following on that discussion of particularly Labour government as it's relevant now, um, not really doing anything. <laughs> We've got the uh, New South Wales election. Did you want to lead that off scene? Indeed. So... The uh, I'm a I'm a Newey boy. I'm uh, originally grew up in Newcastle before uh, joining the mass exodus of Newcastrians down to Melbourne town, and so I uh, am pretty interested in New South Wales politics. And after 12 years of the Liberals holding government in New South Wales, there is a chance that the Labor Party will kind of maybe win this weekend and take government. Um, the New South Wales Labor Party in general is like a real dumpster fire. And, um, <laughs> like, yeah. Just over many years, it's just been dominated by, like in the previous government you had, um, oh, what was his name? McDonald, um, is it Ian McDonald? No, that was the old industry minister. Anyway, you had this um, senior figure in the former Labor government back in the kind of 2010s who corruptly awarded himself um, and and his mates tenure, at, like a contract to have a coal mine on their land in, uh, in the Hunter Valley. And they were found guilty of corruption by the... Uh, ICAC, the Independent Commission Against Corruption up there. Uh, meanwhile, the particularly property developers have got this long-standing relationship with both the Liberal and Labor Party in New South Wales, and um, basically property developers do what they want. Uh, and, yeah, the leadership of the current New South Wales Labor Party is from the right faction, Chris Minns, and they're like... Your, your classic small target guff, um, Labour yeah. Party platform. So yeah, there's an article from, um, Peter Boyle in the current, <coughs> in the current Green Left, and it's talking about how we've got the climate crisis, the housing crisis, cost of living, falling wages, and if elected, uh, the Labour Party in New South Wales don't have many answers to any of those things. Um, it does feel a bit like a repeat of the Labor Party's federal election campaign being that, like, at least we're not as bad as those guys. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, to be very slightly fair, that's technically true, but without anything that's, like, without any 
kind of proper positions on what's worth voting f- for them for to begin with, it's still pretty lackluster effort. And like you said, Zane, it's a lot of the, I mean, the Labour Party in New South Wales is a dumpster fire to begin with, but they're also coming from the right, um, which has historically not worked very well for Labour either, kind of just trying to chase the Liberal voters because Liberal voters can vote for the Liberals. So it doesn't seem like a, a very good strategy. Mm. Um, not to mention that, like, as you said, there's not actually, they're not putting forward any real answers to the many, many problems that we have. Mm. So it's, while it would technically be better um, in any minuscule sense for them to be elected there, it's not encouraging, certainly, about how it would turn out if they did get elected, or it's not encouraging for their chances to get elected to begin with, because what are they saying other than we're not quite as bad, we promise? Well, one of the things that they've said is we will introduce legislation that will make it like impossible for future governments to privatise uh, the state-owned water utility. Yeah, that's kind of profoundly cynical and ironic, given that the Liberals started hocking off all sorts of public uh, assets in the 2010s, most notably the electricity assets and the power stations. Yeah. So look, they can't really get on their high horse and claim to be the party of anti-privatisation mm. when Liberal governments at a state and federal level across the country have been hocking off stuff that's owned by the people for the last few decades. Yeah. And there's a lot of cases in which Labor started the privatization that the Liberals continued and now Labor likes to go back and say, oh, the, the Libs privatized all this stuff. It's like, yeah, well, so did you. So mm. I don't know why you're talking about this. <clears throat> yes. Now, another, uh, another bit of news. We're, we're going to get uh, Alex Bainbridge on the line here pretty soon to talk about uh, the, um, the movement to to try and stop the invasion of Iraq 20 years ago, which was like... The protests were massive, although not particularly sustained. Mm. Um, Alex was quite involved in that, so it's going to be interesting to have a, a yak to him and also talk a bit about the AUKUS and the uh, these disgusting, expensive nuclear submarines. But before we get to that, just a brief uh, update as well. Um, it's an article by Susan Price at greenleft.org.au talking about Turkey Erdogan attempts to ban pro-Kurdish party ahead of snap poll. Turkey will go to election on May 14 after President Recep Tayyip Erdogan called a snap poll and the pro-Kurdish People's Democratic Party or HDP will likely be forced to use a different party name due to a politically motivated trial against it. The HDP's executive board is expected to decide to run under the name Green Left Party. Cool name, but (laughs) not really ideal circumstances. Mm. Um, That the, yeah, the Halkarin Democratic Partisi is being forced to run under by the profoundly repressive and undemocratic um, 
regime in, in Turkey. The snap poll takes place in the context of the catastrophic earthquakes and now floods that have devastated the country and killed more than 47,000 people. The Erdogan regime has been widely condemned for its disaster response, in particular failing to provide adequate emergency rescue and relief to the majority Kurdish regions impacted. Um, and the decision to run under the Green Left Party uh, as the Green Left Party was forced on the HDP after the Turkish Constitutional Court proposed postponed the defence's closing arguments in the HDP ban case until April 11, despite an application from its legal team for three months' postponement. So the HDP were saying, look, let us run in the election and uh, then you can decide whether we're banned or not. And the court was like, no, no, we're going to conveniently make a decision one month out from the election as to whether or not you're allowed to run as the HDP in the election. Now, for anyone who's ever been involved in an election campaign, being able to find out whether or not you're allowed to run as yourself four weeks before the election is not very convenient for your campaign. So they're no. being put in a position where they're saying, all right, preemptively we have to run as the Green Left Party um, based on the assumption that we're probably going to be banned. Yeah, because, I mean, yeah, like you said, finding out four weeks ahead of time is not very useful, especially because it would otherwise prevent you from doing all this campaigning. So it's really a necessary move from the HDP. Mm. And... Um, I mean, doubly so if they do end up being banned, but, like, who knows if that's going to happen. But they need to get out there and spread the word, so to speak. So, got to do something. And, yeah, yeah, good name choice. (laughs) And the HDP, uh, for for listeners who are not familiar, they're, they're like, probably the largest... um, Well, they definitely are the largest sort of radical left party in the Turkish parliament... And they are, uh, they've been polling about 10% uh, of the vote. Um, so a pretty substantial representation that, you know, they're probably on par in terms of their electoral um, support with the Greens in Australia. This is not a tiny micro party that's got barely any support. This is a major party that gets... You know, one in ten people in Turkey vote for them. So, uh, in, in addition to banning the HDP, a five-year ban from politics is being sought for 451 HDP members, including the co-chairs, elected members of parliament, and party council members. So, yeah, it's super repressive and undemocratic. And uh, it's uh, evidently, it's not just Erdogan and his party, the AKP, but also the sort of main opposition party, which is this far-right nationalist movement party, the MHP, are sort of banding together to um, uh, try and silence the main real left opposition party in Turkey, the, the mm-hmm. HDP. So, yeah, keep an, keep an ear out for updates um, around that. Keep an eye on Turkish politics. Yeah. But for now, we should probably maybe go to an announcement or song or something while we try and get Alex on the line um, to talk about the uh, protests against the Iraq invasion and um, modern analogs. Yes.
Indeed. Yeah, we'll uh, yeah, we'll just go to an announcement and then we'll be talking to Alex. Stick with us. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. All right, welcome back. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. It is almost, uh, it's about 17 minutes past seven. And on the phone, uh, we have got Alex Bainbridge. Um, Alex is a Socialist Alliance member and activist from Mianjin, Brisbane. Alex writes for Green Left and was heavily involved in organizing protests against the invasion of Iraq back in 2003. Welcome, Alex. Good morning, Zane. Um, so, 20, 20 years, far out. We're, uh, we're, we're, we're getting on in age uh, a little bit. <laughs> it doesn't feel like that long ago. Um, can you take us back, Alex, to the context uh, of the build-up to the invasion of, of Iraq um, and, and sort of set the scene of what it was like back then? Um there are lots of things you can say about the context. I mean, one of the things that, um, I mean, obviously, it's all in the wake of the September 11 attacks on the, um, on the, on the, you know, World Trade Center in the United States and, and the Pentagon. Um, and that had, I mean, that had really sort of pulled the, um, pulled the rug under the, uh, there was a very strong anti-corporate globalization movement that was, you know, closing down the WTO in, um, Seattle and, um, Blockading the World Economic Forum in Melbourne, uh, that was, and it was a very strong international movement. And that, you know, the rug was really pulled out from under that when the September 11 terrorist attack happened. Um, but, but it was only yeah, straight away the, the response of the, of the Bush administration was to uh, launch an invasion of Afghanistan, which really um, worried a lot of people. And there was a, there was a there was a strong anti-war movement against that, but it was it was small by comparison to the um, to the movement against the Iraq invasion. I think that was partly because it was just so, um, it, it happened so soon afterwards and people were shocked by it. But a couple of years later, by, in the lead up to the Iraq invasion in 20, 2003, people were just outraged at the idea that here was the United States going to go and, um, launch this invasion against a country which had nothing to do with the, with the September 11 attacks. Um, and also part of the context with Iraq was that, um, Iraq had been massively unfairly treated by the United States. Um, in the sort of you know more than ten years since the since the um, the, the, the previous US invasion of Iraq in 1991, um, and you know during that time there were like uh, there was a blockade which killed according to the UN over a million children, um, and Madeleine Albright, who was the Democratic Secretary of State, famously or infamously said that the price was worth it, uh, the price of trying to contain uh, Saddam Hussein's Iraq. We in the anti-war movement never 
supported the Saddam Hussein dictatorship, um, but we definitely supported the right for the Iraqi people to uh, to work these things out for themselves, and and we were a hundred percent against the United States imposing um, imposing uh, well, it's really imposing their their solutions uh, at the point of an invasion. Hmm. So, uh, as Zane already said, oh, Ari here, by the way, hey, Alex. <laughs> um, as Zane already said, you were fairly involved in um, some of the organising of the protests in twenty of sorry, 2003. Um, so, I mean, who else was involved, or who was involved broadly in organising those protests um, across Australia, and, like, what sort of different groups and forces? Everybody that was vaguely progressive, when I say that, I mean, I'm including even the ALP and trade union secretaries and, you know, um, and peace movement activists, everybody on the left uh, was involved in some way, uh, without exception. Um, and so, yeah, there were very broad organizing, um, coalitions. I was, I was based in Hobart at the time, which was a, which was a small, uh, city, obviously, uh, but we still had a, a large and dynamic, um, anti-war coalition um and yeah and that was that was echoed all around the country and there were tiny little peace groups started up in um universities and schools and little neighborhoods there was sort of all over the world um and you know i mean the highlight there was a big i mean melbourne started off that weekend of action in february uh before the invasion uh on the friday evening i remember that very clearly it was like there was this huge rally of 250,000 people, I think, in Melbourne. And, um, and I, I'd been living in Melbourne 10 years earlier when we had the anti-Kennet demo. So that was that that anti-Iraq war invasion protest was bigger than the anti-Kennet demos. And those of us looking from the rest of the country were like just so impressed and so inspired by that size. And then on the Saturday, almost everywhere else in the country had their protests. And there were thousands and tens of thousands of people of those, and you know, exciting and um, you know, very uh, a huge buzz about about the, the level of the turnout, the level of opposition. Um, when when you sort of added it up afterwards, it added up to about another two hundred and fifty thousand around the country. Then, and then on the on the Sunday was the was the big protest in Sydney, which that was almost you know that was about half a million. So essentially, add it all up, and it adds up to a million people protesting in Australia, and. And you can't get that kind of level of protest without, without the kind of, you know, the coalitions and the, um, and the, you know, the involvement of, you know, basically the entire left. Every, every progressive, uh, section of society was in some way, um, involved in supporting, um, supporting those protests. And it was tremendously inspiring. I mean, I think you gotta, I mean, I mean, obviously we knew what we were up against in terms of U.S. imperialism was 100% uh, dead set in, um, uh, dead set determined that they were going to have this invasion no matter what the political cost, no matter what lies they had to tell. Um, but, um, we also felt, felt like, well, man, we've actually maybe got a chance of stopping this. Um, which I guess did, did come, did mean that there was a letdown afterwards, uh, for a lot of people, um, which is why the anti-war movement didn't continue, um, or at least not at the same strength. I mean, obviously the movement continued, but but not at the same strength as the one million people protesting. Yeah, it'd be great if you could uh, unpack that a bit more. Now, of course, there was massive protests in other centres all around the world too, uh, but probably unlike the Vietnam, the, the movement against the Vietnam War sort of 30 years earlier, 
there didn't end up being this sustained um, mass movement to get the US out of uh, Iraq once the invasion happened. Uh, there were still protests, but not anywhere near on that scale. Um, I'm wondering if you can comment a bit on the sort of debates that came up in the organising meetings. You've talked about how people were kind of demoralised and deflated once the invasion still happened after some of the biggest protests in in, in the last century, uh, uh, the biggest global protests. So, yeah, like what was the, the aftermath of that, that huge protest and, and the, the sort of pretty quick dying away of that protest movement. I, I think when you're comparing it with the Vietnam War, the, the thing you need to remember, I mean, I mean, obviously where there were precedents before then, but I mean, there was sort of the, the kind of beginning of, well, the escalation of combat advice or military advisors in Vietnam was like 1965. So really in a way, I mean, even though it kind of had begun before then, in some ways you can think of the, the Vietnam War beginning in 1965. And like there was, there was some opposition in Australia and other parts of the world, but it was quite muted. It was very small, tiny in opinion polls. Mm. And um, um, uh, and then it, it took it took six or seven years before the big you know, moratorium demonstrations in the early 1971, 72, um, or maybe the 70, 71. I forget the dates, but it was like it was that sort of it was six or seven years period, and in that time. The anti-war movement had built up and built up slowly, patiently, um, you know, slowly and patiently built up uh, to the point where, um, uh, you know, essentially there was nothing, there were no lies the media could throw at that, at that anti-war movement that would stick because people had seen, had, you know, all those years and years of experience of seeing the lies and just, you know, seeing the lies and seeing the body bags. Um, and then, you know, of course, all the US atrocities were exposed gradually over time and, and it just Built up to an escalating movement that essentially got to a point where you know countries like the United States and Australia, um, yeah, had to, you know, well, Australia was through combat troops. Um, the United States um, stopped um, making combat troops the focus of their military engagement and, and shifted towards you know aerial bombing and actually reduced the troop numbers in the last few years of the war until they basically lost hmm. militarily as well. Um, and so, like, that, that's a different context. I mean, one of the things which is so impressive about the, the protest against the Iraq invasion in 2003 is that the entire movement, or the height of the movement at least, happened before the invasion even began. And in some ways that's a strength. Like, in some ways that was a, that rep represented a, a huge gain in consciousness of the population that this war is not in our interest, it's not in the, people, the interest of the Iraqi people, this is just an imperialist adventure for control of the Middle East. Um, and, and we shouldn't be part of it. And the fact that that was, you know, that all that level of consciousness was achieved before the war even began. And I mean, the truth in opinion polls in Australia, I mean, there were different opinion polls, and they were some said more than fifty, and some said under fifty um, were were opposed to the impen then impending invasion. But either way, it was around about fifty percent, almost about half the population, or, or half or more of the population that were um, opposed to the. Um, to the then impending invasion. But in some ways, the fact that this all began before the invasion began was a bit of a weakness for the movement in the sense that it didn't, it, it wasn't that same experience that had been built up of the activists and the, and the population that, that had occurred in the Vietnam War. Hmm. So that when, when the invasion began, John Howard came in with this, um, with this line, support your troops. Doesn't matter if you opposed the war before, but now that the war has began with Australian troops are in combat, you need to support those troops. 
um, yeah, that that line had a certain appeal to some people, um, or at least if not an appeal, um, people didn't know how to answer it, and and so so that was one thing. And then I think a lot of people were a lot of people a lot of people had literally you can't have the biggest protest in world history without a huge numbers coming along for their first ever protest, the first one they've ever taken any political action on anything. Um, and you know that's that's not the same thing as that's not the same level of experience that has been built up in the anti um, anti Vietnam War movement. And so, it, it, I mean, it was you know it was devastating for a lot of people that the the Howard government just went ahead with Australian involvement in that invasion despite this huge protest. And you know, in a certain sense, you can understand it. Um, I think that Howard made a calculation, and you know, it turned out to be a correct calculation that um, that the fact that the government went ahead with the invasion despite the opposition that that would demoralise people. And for years after that, you'd hear people say you'd be trying to advertise a protest about anything, doesn't matter what the issue was. Oh, what's the point of protesting? The government will just ignore you anyway. Mm. But I think I think I mean that's one side of it. I mean I think the other thing to remember it's, it's important to remember the anti-war movement didn't stop. The anti-war there were still very sizable protests even after the invasion. It was just not at that level of <laughs> the biggest protest in world history. Mm. But there was still there was there was a lot of opposition that still continued, and that opposition had a um, had a number of impacts. I mean even one of the things that uh, one of the things I mean it's a bit gruesome in a way, but the US was. Um, planning a, what they call the shock and awe um, beginning of the invasion. And the military leaders were complaining, oh, we couldn't be as shocking and as awesome. That is, we couldn't kill as many people as they wanted to in the invasion because they were sensitive to, um, to, the, to, the, to the public opinion that was opposing the invasion at all. And there were other things as well. I think the fact that, the, I think that, the fact that there was such a strong anti-war movement gave confidence to the Iraqi resistance. And, you know... It's it, look. It's been a messy sort of um, fifteen or twenty years of you know of what's happened in Iraq. But there's actually, even though it's not really reported that way in the media, it's kind of a bit the case that the US lost that that war in Iraq. I mean, like they've you know, um, I mean, obviously they've caused huge devastation in the country. But they didn't. They didn't also achieve the goals that they wanted to. I mean, you remember George Bush, you know, uh, appeared on a, on a navy vessel with, under the and that mission accomplished. That was only a few months after the invasion. Now, trying to get the sense to people, oh, yes, it, it, you know, the war's over now, we've won, we've won, we've achieved, we've achieved the mission. And that was false. And, and you know, so that there were... Yeah. Anyway, so basically, the thing is, it didn't go so smoothly for the, for the invaders as they had wanted. And, I mean, we're in a difficult situation now. I mean, like, you can see that... Um, had we been successful in in stopping that Iraq invasion, it would be, it would be much harder for the uh, for the for the governments of the world to be, or the governments of the Western imperialist world, to be um, planning an invasion of on on on, or at least a military engagement against China, which uh, seems to be at least what some people have in mind, um, and that would be equally devastating for the whole world, really, if if, if such a military engagement were to take place. Yeah, but. Um, I mean, uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, didn't mean to interrupt, but yeah. I mean, f- on one hand, it would be insane to try and have a military engagement against China, but 
on the other hand, sort of following from what you were saying about the difference between the anti-war movement with Vietnam and the more the the kind of more short-term spontaneous actions in 2003, like what do you see? As I mean, the lessons, but also the possible direction that we could go now, with um, protesting the the kind of con- continuously ramping or trying to oppose the continuously ramping up kind of war drive against China, particularly in the context of stuff like AUKUS and what's the and the Quad and that sort of thing. The lesson of history from both the movement against the Iraq invasion, but also everything, all progressive change, it can only happen with grassroots, um, large-scale mobilisation against the governments that are not acting in our interests. Uh, I personally have got a lot of confidence that um, protesting can make the difference now against an impending invasion of China, and also more broadly on climate change, on uh, social justice, workers' rights, uh, defending the NDIS, a whole, you know, all the things that are important um, in, in Australian society today. Uh, people power is stronger than the government. We just need to, to organise it, and in the right circumstances, it can happen. And, you know, these things are always... These things never go in a straight line. There's always an ebb and a flow. But the fact that the fact that, that Iraq... Um, the opposition to the Iraq invasion was so strong, and it, it, it truly was... It's very hard to get a sense of it if you weren't part of it, because it, it was everywhere. Um, there were... Um, People were expressing their opposition in so many ways. Not, I mean, obviously the protests were the most visible way for it, but it happened in, you know, songs on the radio, on the, um, you know, just uh, people's, you know, uh, expressions and, and things that they would just, you know, say to people on the street. I mean, it was, it was, it was a very, um, a very strong opposition, um, and and that. Uh, I mean, I think I think the biggest thing you need to think about, you know, in terms of the demoralisation question, is how demoralising would it have been if there'd been no opposition? And the mm-hmm. fact of the matter is, the people resisted, and the governments the governments um, ignored the people, not ignored, but defied the people. And um, this uh, this is the other thing I was going to say is that on all of the important questions, the anti-war movement was right. We said the government was saying lies. It's been proven they were telling lies. Mm. We said it was going to cause devastation to Iraq. It did cause devastation to Iraq. Um, all of the all of the claims that we made, um, the the big important claims have been have been vindicated by by the way things have, um, have 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 turned out. And I think all those things together mean that it is it is more than possible for um, for people power movements to go as far as that. Um, 2003 movement went, and then also beyond it, and to to be a, to be an actual restraining force on uh, on future invasions and and justice projects more more broadly. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, a very inspiring <laughs> position to have. I mean, I agree with you, but still very well put. Um. <clears throat> Yes. Uh, any final comments, and particularly in the in the context of yeah, trying to build a movement against these disgusting um, burning of giant mountains of cash on these nuclear submarines. Yeah. Well, I think that I think that's that's the front line today. I mean, so in some ways we can look back on history, and I think it's important we look back and we draw the inspiring lessons that we can from that from that movement. You know, in some ways, we don't want to just look back on our laurels or look back on and analyze the past. 
right now the cutting edge is building a movement against these orcas, um, orcas in general and these submarines in particular. And, um, you know, I mean, there's a whole lot of other things that, you know, there's fighter jets. There's, in general, Australia is seeking to position itself as a, um, as a, as a leading world supplier of military arms. Um, to other countries, military exports. All these things are part of a militarist project, which we need to, um, which we which we need to very strongly sort of oppose. And I think actually this is I think probably the important thing to realise that there's nothing inevitable. There was there was nothing inevitable about that movement against the the Iraq invasion in 2003. There were a number of things that came together, which I guess gave it a certain. Um, which, which meant that it was able to be so strong. But also, it wouldn't have happened had it not been for grassroots activists doing the patient organising work, you know, the very simple things, creating posters, putting them up, you know, sending out emails, um, you know, phone trees, uh, you know, meeting, meeting in coalitions and having de- discussions and debates. And there, there were debates, of course. It wasn't all um, a, you know, you, you can't get the entire progressive side of Australia together on one question without expecting it. It's going to be discussion and debates about various things. Um, all those things, the patient organising that led into that um, that movement is going to be necessary to also um, you know, create the opposition that is needed if we are going to stop these AUKUS submarines. Because, and that is that is the front line of, of the movement for certainly the movement against militarism in Australia today. But I think, there's, I think there is a very real sense that We've kind of got two paths we can go down in society in general. One is we can actually um, take measures to stop the climate catastrophe on, on the one hand. The other option is we can go down this path of building higher fences and you know, stronger militaries and trying to uh, think that we can, you know, quote-unquote, protect our way of life that way. Um, the first way is actually a, a, a path that is going to build security and and you know, if we do a properly be security and justice for everybody on the planet. Um, the other path, you know, despite the temptation to some people to think otherwise, is going to be insecurity and injustice for everybody on the planet. So I, I think that I mean I think that climate action is is real. We really have the case today of you know climate action versus more wars, and and we should be on the side of climate action. Mm. There was a joke I saw somewhere on the internet on the way here actually which was basically about climate deniers and the joke is what if this is all fake and we're trying to make a better world for no reason so it's that's the work that needs to be done on all of those fronts like you were saying very well put um and yeah thank you very much for joining us alex all Uh, right thanks for thanks thanks heaps yeah all right. Uh, talk to you again soon, see you Alex. Next time. Take yeah. care. All right. See ya. Yes, uh, Alex Bainbridge there, uh, Socialist Alliance activist, uh, author for Green Left Weekly, and uh, quite active um, part of the movement to try and stop the Iraq War and get troops out once it happened twenty twenty years ago. Yeah, and just generally very friendly dude. <laughs> he came down to Melbourne recently to actually to help film that forum we did with uh, Lydia Thorpe. Hmm. And um, yeah, very friendly. Great guy. All right, we might pay a quick announcement and then keep it, keep it rolling.
All right, stick with us. 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3CR.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. All right. Hello and welcome back to Greenleft Radio on 3CR855AM. Um, just before that announcement, we were talking to Alex Bainbridge um, about the 2003 protests against the invasion of Iraq and some of the the lessons we can take forward and the new ways that we need to approach things. Um, and coming up, we have an interview with Amy Sargent, who's a protest artist and activist based in Mianjin, Brisbane. And we're going to be talking about the, particularly about the kind of the fascist um, and like explicitly Nazi relationship with um, the the quote unquote gender critical or just anti trans movements that we've got going today, and <clears throat> just before we get Amy on the phone, I wanted to talk about something um, that is it strikes me as relevant whenever we talk about trans stuff. And particularly, um, well, recently, and particularly about like drag bands and that sort of stuff that's been coming out of the U.S. as um, Posey Parker does, is that in Arkansas recently um, they removed the need for parental consent and for pretty much employer accountability when it comes to hiring children, and <laughs> which is to say uh, people below sixteen. And it's kind of in the wake of a New York Times investigation uh, last year that found there's a bunch of places in the U.S. that uh, hire children illegally to do just really, really stuff that children are explicitly not allowed to do in a lot of the U.S., like cleaning slaughterhouses and working in factories and doing 12-hour overnight shifts and that sort of stuff. Yeah, okay, so stuff where you can literally die at work. Oh, yeah, there's lots of reports um, of children dying at work from... <laughs> doing those jobs, particularly migrant children. Um, surprise, surprise. Yeah, right. But the reason that I, wanted, that I want to talk about this in relation to talking about trans stuff and queer stuff in general and whatever is because there's always, and there always will be, there's always that line of like, think about the children. You know, don't do this stuff in front of the children. But this is what conservatives want to do to children, right? And I mean, leaving aside the obvious thing about for some reason, the the conservative internet has decided that just all being queer in general is somehow child grooming, and the statistics uh, do not bear out possibly the opposite. Leaving that aside, um, it's- yeah, and and so to um, to stop child grooming, we're going to team up with right wing Christians, yeah, a group who have certainly no demonstrated history of child grooming, no, like yeah. Uh, no. Just morally and logically bankrupt, yeah. scum, madness. Mm. And the the reason I want to bring it up, uh, or the the thing that strikes me about this, and I can't remember where I, I read some analysis somewhere on the internet ages ago that made this really good point, is that when you think about basically when you would otherwise accuse the right wing of hypocrisy, because that seems obviously what they're doing 
I mean, accuse them of it anyway, because it's true. But the thing to think about sometimes is like, what does this actually show about the right wing perspective, particularly who do they consider to be people? Right. So like you can talk about, uh, they want, they're talking about protecting children from the queers or from brown people or whatever they're talking about protecting children from this week. But then they're sending them to literally die breathing in toxic chemicals, working a 12 hour shift at an abattoir. And you're like, that seems hypocritical in some way. And you just sort of have to think that like, ah, they don't want children exposed to the people that they don't consider people, but they also don't consider children people. Children are just like objects that are there to, I don't know. I don't know what right-wing people think children are for, but they definitely don't think of them as people. And it just seems really weird if you kind of, if you don't notice that, for me at least, is like, what, how, how do these people think that both we can't have men wear dresses near them, but also again, die of toxic fume inhalation in abattoirs working 12 hour overnight shifts. Maybe they don't want the kids to be empowered and uh, self-confident so that they can put them to work in the factories. Oh, you might be onto something there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's, it's a uh, dangerous territory. Once you actually try and start getting into the headspace and trying to fathom how these people think, <laughs> you can, you can, I, uh, you can, turn your neurons in some pretty serious knots like it's yeah some of that stuff it's not actually possible to really rationalize what they're going on about it literally makes no sense and there's no way of understanding it it's uh, yeah i mean just look at me i tried to work it out and now i'm crazy (laughs) i definitely wasn't crazy to begin with (laughs) but yes that's also a good point very quickly before we get amy on the phone is um the conservative worldview is f- both fundamentally different from most people's worldview and also pretty much fundamentally insane. So <laughs> having said that, we're about to get Amy Sargent on the phone to talk about fascists. Yes. So we'll just play a quick uh, quick announcement and then we'll get Amy on the phone from Mianjin, Brisbane. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. Uh, we're just having a bit of trouble <clears throat> raising Amy Sargent, and so I just wanted to play a song, and this song stems back to the um, Iraq protests, war, Iraq war, Iraq invasion protest era, and it's from a band from London, I think they're from, um, called The Rub, 
and it's called George Bush is an <laughs> George Bush is an Islamic fundamentalist. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and uh, we'll be back soon. Here's an interesting bit of conspiracy theory for you. George Bush is an Islamic fundamentalist, obviously. Trained by Al-Qaeda in the heart of Texas to fight for the faithful army. He's now in the process of uniting the rest of the world against the good old U.S. of A. The land of the free will come crashing down if he has his way. The only explanation of pushy boys and Islamic fundamentalist. He's three quarters of the way through his plan already and no one's even noticed. There must be a damn fine Al-Qaeda training camp they got down there in Texas. Getting him to pretend he's as thick as pig shit was a stroke of pure bloody genius. Yeah, George Bush is an Islamic fundamentalist, obviously. Trained by Al-Qaeda in the heart of Texas to fight for the faithful army. He's now in the process of uniting the rest of the world against the good old USA. USA. The land of the free will come crashing down if he has his way. Trust me. Decided over and has been directly involved with one of the worst financial disasters of a generation. Every movie makes seems to be directly against the interests of his nation. Haven't you noticed? He's used the media to increase the social insulation of an already fairly blind population since the McCarthy days. And now he's declared war on Islam just to increase the consternation. As far as I can see, there's only one explanation. George Bush is an Islamic fundamentalist, obviously. These days on the street, you hear all kind of interesting conspiracy theories because no one knows what the fuck's going on. We're all looking for explanations. The most interesting one I heard the other day was that the West was controlled by genuine democracies that actually represent the will of their populations. Only oh, the one about the aliens, the Antichrist, and the Freemasons is more laughable. Ha, 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 ha. I think my theory is much more plausible. Let me tell you about it. It goes like this. George Bush is an Islamic fundamentalist, obviously. It really is the only explanation I can see. Or it's truly anti-American foreign policy. Now at this point I would ask you all to sing along with the chorus normally if it wasn't for the fact that there are cameras on the premises and the CIA might be requisitioning the tapes at any time. So I recommend that under all circumstances catch you though this number is you do not sing along. You do not even smile. I recommend the most you do is tap your feet. But you do that at your own risk. The George Bush is an Islamic fundamentalist, obviously. 
Claimed by Al-Qaeda in the heart of Texas To fight for the faithful army George Bush is an Islamic fundamentalist, obviously George Bush is an Islamic fundamentalist, obviously Islamic fundamentalist, obviously. Push, push is an Islamic fundamentalist, obviously. Oh, Rutty, that was the rub with George Bush is an Islamic fundamentalist. And on the phone from Mianjin, Brisbane, we have got Amy Sargent. And, yeah, Amy is a protest artist and activist and has been at some of the, um, yeah, counter-protests against this transphobe Posey Parker over the last week and a bit. Welcome, Amy. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, really good. Um, all right. So it's been pretty, uh, disturbing and full on over the last little while. People across Australia and around the world were shocked by images of neo-Nazis doing Sig Hale salutes at a rally in Melbourne by, um, at this rally organized by this celebrity transphobe Posey Parker last Saturday. Um, we'll get to the fascists, but can you maybe start by telling listeners a bit about who this Posey Parker is? Yeah, well, uh, Posey Parker, or also referred to as uh, Kelly J. Keane Mensal, uh, is a far-right provocateur. She's a, a what you could call a grifter. She used to be uh, an anti-Islam campaigner, and then once that grift dried up, she's now moved on to targeting trans people. And she does these events, which she calls Let Women Speak. Uh, the idea, you know, is that the transphobic people, they won't let us talk, they won't give us a platform, blah, blah, blah. And so she goes around to various countries, her tour is funded by dark, dark money groups uh, and sets up a mic and they just spew bigotry, basically. And so she's done it across Europe and uh, most recently she's done it across Australia. Um, and, uh, you know, from she, she was up here in Mianjin or Brisbane a couple of weeks ago, uh, then through to Melbourne last Saturday. And uh, yesterday the tour concluded in... Uh, Canberra. <laughs> so, I mean, since the rally, coming back to the fascists, um, now that we have left the topic, uh, since the rally with the fascist salutes in Melbourne, um, Posey Park has been kind of trying to claim that it was a big surprise and that the fascists showed up and or, you know, she didn't know they were real fascists and thought they were waving to the counter-protests or something. Can you comment a bit um, on the... Basically, the connections, the links between Posey Parker and that sort of quote-unquote gender-critical movement and the just outright fascists. Yes. Well, look, the first thing to say very clearly, uh, and there was a great article by Madison Stoff in Overland uh, that was published yesterday on this topic, and the, the article was about the fact that gender essentialism is a far-right white supremacist view. So from the get-go, 
they're already on the same page with Nazis, right? So no wonder Nazis are coming to support their events. As for, you know, Kelly J. Keane slash Posey Parker or whatever, claiming that she was surprised that Nazis showed up, she's asked Nazis to come. Uh, there are videos of her saying, hey, where are you boys? Come on, the, the Proud Boys and Nazis, come on, come to my rallies. Her big thing as a far-right provocateur and grifter, uh, the line that she repeats all the time, that she repeated on the steps uh, of Melbourne, um, that I heard with my own ears there in person, was that, look, you don't have to agree with anything anyone else believes, but you just have to believe that you know what a woman is. Um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, which is very uh, convenient, right, when you're trying to, yeah, build a kind of conspiracy movement. Um, as for her claims that, oh, I thought they were waving and everything, uh, that, that's just absolutely ridiculous. And to be clear, uh, those Nazis got in behind the police line with the help of the TERF people. We've got videos of that. I saw it happen with my own eyes. And they proceeded to march around uh, and seek hail and chant Heil Hitler with the Turks for hours and hours and hours. This didn't just happen for 10 minutes. It went on for hours. And she had the mic. She didn't condemn them once. So if you're at a rally and there's Nazis on your side, you're at a Nazi rally. You're facilitating a Nazi rally. So, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 100%. And there was that excellent comic by the... Um, Canadian trans artist Sophie LaBelle that, that made that point mm. really, really beautifully. Um, now on Tuesday evening, three days after we had this uh, neo-Nazi sig hailing on the steps of Vic Parliament, far-right Christians attacked a group of LGBTIQ protesters outside a meeting uh, at a church in Sydney where Mark Latham was speaking about you know, the right of Christians to be bigots and not have laws that enshrine uh, equality and anti-discrimination. Um, Amy, can you comment on, like, like, do you feel that, that that violence that we saw on Tuesday evening in Sydney is linked um, to, to what was happening in Melbourne on Saturday? Do you think they were emboldened? Certainly. Certainly emboldened. I think... We are living in a moment in history where the climate of violence experienced by queer people and especially by trans people is intensifying at a really troubling rate. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> queer and especially trans and gender diverse people know that because we experience it all the time. Um, but it's not necessarily reported on in a meaningful or fair way in any you know, establishment press outlets. So a lot of people would be probably surprised to hear that. Um, but I think for any queer person or any LGBT, uh, sorry, or any uh, trans or gender diverse person seeing that reporting either from the steps of parliament with the Nazis or with the, you know, groups uh, beating up trans people outside the Mark Latham event, that didn't come as a surprise. As you said, the mainstream media, so to speak, the establishment media, does have a definite bias against reporting accurately on the violence against queer people, and particularly trans and gender diverse people. 
that's um, becoming increasingly obvious and also for some reason has um, a vested interest in trying to escalate that violence. Like the the Onion had a <laughs> the Onion on brand on, yeah. um, point as usual had that great article recently that was something it was titled something along the lines of as a journalist I consider it my job to make life harder for trans people uh, <laughs> or to no is to make it life more feels dangerous. That way. <laughs> yeah, and it does feel that way, um, <clears throat> particularly with the establishment media ignoring events like that or reporting on them in a very kind of minor way. Um, mm-hmm. But on the other hand, as scary as it is that the far right thugs are trying to mobilize around transphobia, and I, I mean honestly, being fairly successful at mobilizing around transphobia, like what do you think of the strength of the counter protests by the queer community and kind of and allies and supporters? Yeah, well, look, I mean, the first thing to say with regard to the Kelly J Keane. Uh, transphobic Nazi collaborator rallies that have taken place around the country in the last few weeks. It has been really beautiful to see so many people come out and outnumber her mob every single time from Hobart to Brisbane to Perth, every single location. There's been hundreds of counter-protesters, many of them allies, many of them cis allies, um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> pushing back against this stuff. And I think, you know, one of the greatest examples was uh, the, the day before last in Hobart where there were literally like 12 people, 12 people max, who were there to see Kelly J. Keane, 12 bigots, and there were hundreds of counter-protesters all around chanting, we do not accept this, you know? Um so, so that was certainly heartening, and I think that is the direction we must head in, um, because trans people, despite the fact that we get a lot of airtime, uh, a tiny, you know, minority group, probably, you know, a bigger uh, percentage of the population than some stats would suggest. But that's another conversation. Mm. But we are a small group, and that's why they come for us. They come and try to attack us because they know we're small. We're an easy target. And so we need allies on our side to stick up for us, right? We can't always be the ones putting our bodies on the line. And that is why I was so impressed uh, by Senator Lydia Thorpe yesterday putting her body on the line and disgustingly, you know, getting body slammed by security and cops outside parliament at the event yesterday mm. yeah nice pretty pretty legend and that comes after um blockading a police vehicle at uh, at mardi gras a few weeks back yeah though exactly she's got some good form yeah thought. and yeah. kind of on that topic of mainstream media it uh, I think my mom mentioned it to me, mentioned, oh, Lydia Thorpe got asked to leave because she was blockading something. And then 10 minutes later, she's like, all right, so I had to search for it, but I found out who she was blockading. And yeah. so th- the fact that you have to put effort in to work out that she was trying to stop the police float that was at Mardi Gras, which is nonsense to begin with, it's really just demonstrative of that sort of bias that exists in a lot of establishment media. 
Yeah, well, I mean, when you look at the violence that we've experienced around the con- the country, and especially it, it escalated to an extreme degree in Nam or Melbourne last Saturday, I mean, it, it simply goes to reinforce why we cannot have cops at Pride events. Yeah, for sure. Um, Amy, we've got to wrap it up and get to activist calendar, but just to finish, how can um, people support the trans and gender diverse community at the moment? What sort of organisations can people rally around? What sort of events or whatever are coming up? Certainly, it's always good to show up and tangibly be there and, like Lydia thought, put yourself on the line if possible. But beyond that, you know, deconstructing the climate of violence, deconstructing the climate of bigotry that we experience can be more than just showing up to events or donating to groups. It can be sticking up for trans and gender diverse people in public amongst friends, you know, all day, every day, um, speaking mm. up when it's uncomfortable to do so amongst your peers and colleagues and so on. And so I great first step if you're not ready to storm into a field of cops and far-right nationalists. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, Sally, for joining us. Um, Amy. Sorry, Amy. <laughs> we had Sally. Yeah, yeah. Thing. Sorry. Thank you very much, Amy, for joining us, Amy Sargent. Um, any final comments before we wrap up? I just uh, think everyone should support 3CR. Um, folks, cha- like Channel 9 wanted to talk to me, but I was like, hell no, we've got to go on 3CR, yeah. um, the GOAT. So subscribe, and thank you so much, folks. <laughs> yeah, word. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks very much for coming on. Cool. See you, folks. Take See care. Uh, yeah, Amy Sargent there, uh, protest artist and activist based in Mianjin, Brisbane. Um, yeah, talking about the... Uh, the challenging situation, but also the inspiring level of uh, solidarity um, for the trans and gender diverse community at the moment in the face of some really ugly and uh, disgraceful um, scapegoating by far-right groups. Mm. All right, you are listening to 3CR, and it is time for the activist calendar. We'll just have a quick announcement, and then we'll get to uh, a bit of a roundup of upcoming rallies and events and forums. Stick with us. 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. All right, welcome back. Uh, We've got a little bit of a wrap-up. And just following off the theme of our last interview, um, there is the Geelong Pride March happening tomorrow. So if you're listening out in the western part of the city or in Geelong. Um, yeah, get along to the Geelong Pride March. Uh, it's happening at Johnston Park from 9.30am tomorrow. And uh, look, P 
power in numbers is really essential, um, just in case any scumbags show up. And I understand that uh, Geelong Trades Hall is going to be uh, heading up the marshalling and making sure that there is a uh, robust presence there to look out for the crowd that's assembled. So uh, please be confident to head along to that. And, um, yeah, show that uh, the the queer community will not be intimidated and uh, the sort of gains that have been won, like equal marriage over the last few years and increased recognition of uh, gender diversity and, and um, yeah, trans people is sandbagged in and extended and will not be rolled back by these, you know, little fringe of uh, far-right thugs. Hmm. Yeah, and that was uh, Sunday, uh, aka the twenty fifth. Oh, nine thirty. No, 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 no. Saturday ah, has it been changed? Today is the twenty fourth. Today is the. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> okay, it's misprinted. <laughs> it's misprinted on my version of the calendar. Oh. Saturday, the twenty fifth. Oh, yeah. Okay. Now I'm looking at the Facebook event. It's definitely, <laughs> definitely tomorrow, Saturday, twenty fifth of March. Johnston Park, Geelong at 9.30am. So, yeah, if you're in the area, if it's not too much of a hike for you to get up to G-Town, get along to it. Yeah. And on a similar trend, uh, next Friday, the 31st, there's a Trans Pride concert at Federation Square in the city from 6pm. So, similar thing. Get along to it if you can be bothered. Um, And uh, because we're a bit short on time before the next interview... uh, we don't have that much more to say about it, but you can go to greenleft.org.au slash events and um, you can see what's going on, some cultural events that we tend to skip on the radio and you can set various parameters. You can look in certain places, you can check certain dates, that sort of stuff. And if you want, you can subscribe to the newsletter um, on that page by just putting in your email. And that's a fortnightly activist calendar of lots of protest events and cultural and left-leaning, left-wing cultural events and that sort of stuff. Yes, and just quickly, a couple of other things are coming up. There's the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice for Refugees. That's at 1.30 at the State Library on Sunday, April 2. Uh, and just before that happens on Friday, March 31, there's also a book launch at Catalyst Social Centre 144 to 146 Sydney Road, Coburg. And that book launch is Histories of Fascism and Anti-Fascism in Australia. That's at 6 o'clock at Catalyst, uh, Sydney Road, Coburg. That's on Friday, March 31. All right. Once again, quick announcement, and then we will get to our next uh, interview, which is with... Um, uh, Margaret Kelly, a yes. resident at Barrack Beacon, um, yes. who's spearheading the effort to not get that demolished in the quote-unquote renewal project. Absolutely. So stick around. You're on 3CR with Zane and Ari. It's Greenleaf Radio. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. 
As a peer-based service, everyone working at Huawei's Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Huawei's Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Huawei's Helpline on 1300 500. That's 1300 500. Wellway supports 3CR. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot, and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Alrighty, welcome back. You are listening to Green Left Radio, Friday Brekkie on 3CR with Zane and Ari. And on the phone, we've got Margaret Kelly, who is a resident at the Barrack Beacon Public Housing Estate. And the Victorian government want to knock that down, even though it's uh, it's got solid bones and it's uh, actually pretty pretty rough on the people who live there. So um, Margaret is one of them. Welcome, Margaret. Hi. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for uh, speaking with us. So, Margaret, um, just to begin with, um, tell us a bit about yourself and like how long have you lived at the at Barrack Beacon? Okay, well, I'm practically a newbie. I've been here for 25 years. <coughs> um, so there are many people here who have lived since it was built 40 years ago. Hmm. Um, and it's always been a very stable place. Um, people tend to just come here and stay. So, uh, it, yeah, it's been a great place to live. Yeah, nice. And uh, yourself and uh, a few others are standing your ground in the face of attempts to uh, kick you out so the place can be demolished. Um, can you just give us a bit of a um, insight as to who else is still there? Okay. Um, there are about 10 households left. And I should emphasise I am the only one who is deliberately staying here and refusing to engage with the relocation process because most people are not in a position to do that, you know, Um they are too frightened to of, of winding up without a home or winding up somewhere horrible um, to to actively resist, but that doesn't mean they like what's happening. Mm. Um, and, and at the moment, the people who are left here are very... They're all people with, with complex difficulties of some sort, and Homes Victoria has failed to find them appropriate accommodation 
and they're now just following a strategy of threatening eviction if they don't move into whatever random property they've come up with. So it sounds like the the process in terms of finding like-for-like like alternative housing is um, not working very well. Is that the impression? Yes. Well, they, they decided to relocate everybody kind of out of the blue without anywhere to relocate them to. Yeah. And it's so random because there was at least five households I've come across that had been already relocated from Paran and Brighton. Um, and then three years later were being told they had to move again. Hmm. Um, yeah. So, you know, one of, one of the purposes and the stated purpose of public housing was to provide people with a secure home. But apparently they've decided that's not their purpose anymore. No. And Margaret, what's the rush like? Is has there even been drawings released of what is to be built to replace Barrack Beacon? No, no, there are no plans, <laughs> as I understand it. There's no tender. Um, they are just determined to get these buildings down, and then they'll think about what to do next. Yeah. Um, so bad luck if the tenderer actually says, hey, I'd like to do a sympathetic restoration, you know, because <laughs> there won't be nothing for them to restore. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, on that topic, um, and I think we talked to Carrie Byrne last year mm-hmm. sometime, who's also a public housing advocate. Um, yep. And, like, the estate... Do you think the estate could be refurbished instead of knocking it down and rebuilding it? Because I understand, uh, sorry, yeah. uh, just I understand from talking to Carrie Byrne that a lot of this renewal project, it ends up with fewer residences afterwards, after they rebuild it, if they ever get around to it. Yes, it might wind up with, a, a, you know, technically more units, but because they're smaller, there's fewer ac- actual beds for mm. people. Um and that is what has happened on, well, mostly what has happened on the other estates is that they have knocked buildings down, made a big hole in the ground, and then wandered off for a few years. So, um, Yeah. And it seems like that's on the cards for Barrack Beacon. Well, very likely. Um, so unlike Homes Victoria, we actually do have plans. Um, we've, we've been able to engage with the not-for-profit design studio office and um, architect Simon Robinson and Steve Minton have done the feasibility study that Homes Victoria didn't do um, and have produced plans and a report explaining exactly how to do everything the government is saying at once, um, including the higher yield, but by reusing the buildings rather than knocking them down. And at the moment, our situation is they won't even acknowledge those plans. Um, of course. Yeah. It does seem to have been the, the government's um, plan. Might be a little strong to say they have plans. Um to just stop maintaining all these places and then eventually yes. be like, ah, oh, um, they're in disrepair for some reason. Uh, let's knock them all down. 
Yes. Yeah, that... Well, maybe that maybe they've got a plan, or maybe they just haven't been maintaining them. Yeah. <laughs> so I have seen some pretty horrid things going round to different people's places of things that could have been fixed but weren't. Um, yeah. I mean, I I know because I've had the same problems in my house, and they have been fixed. <laughs> so, yeah. Margaret, I'm really interested, actually. I, I studied architecture many years ago. What was right. the um, process for getting this uh, alternative set of plans drawn up? How did you find these uh, not-for-profit architects and, and kind of work with them? Um, I found them through a connection of um, the Safe Public Housing Collective. That was where the connection was made. Um and then Simon and Steve came in and talked to residents and looked at a lot of buildings, um, you know, inside and out. Um, and then they did a survey with residents to see what things people thought needed, you know, what was good and what needed to change. Um, and then they went to work and produced these plans. So that is nothing like the process of Homes Victoria. They did a a consultation that was just farcical. I think you call it push marketing. Hmm. You know, they, they ask questions like, if we build energy-efficient homes, do you think tenants will pay less for, for electricity? Like <laughs> The classic. Um, yeah, so it was a whole lot of questions that you were going to answer yes to. Well, I didn't, but um, because the fact is I know... Um, I'm a carer for somebody on the, in the estate that was the prototype for these places, and I know that their place is not energy efficient. Mm. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's the other classic, isn't it? Is the government says, oh, we're going to make sure everything's more energy efficient, and we're going to get the developers to do these things, and the developers are like, hey, it's cheaper to pay fines than to actually do this properly. So, um, no. Absolutely. And what, just in the, the wider, the local area, um, we have a new development across the road and as part of those developments, some community facilities were installed and they are now being held to ransom by developers who have knocked the buildings down, well, decommissioned one and just let it fall down and the other one knocked down and then they're saying, hey, well, actually, we'd like to build more stories on this. You know, mm. they've, they've, they've got permission for three, now they want six. Yeah. Um, and it does seem to be a developer trick, and I kind of wonder why they're allowed to do it. Um, I mean, this is our gym, our childcare centre, our shop and local cafe that are all not there because... Um, you know, well, in the case of the gym and the childcare centre, it's been 15 years because uh, some overseas investor wants to build a tower block yeah. in an inappropriate place. Um, yeah, exactly. They want to make yeah. the buildings bigger and more flammable, and anything that yeah. gets in their way, they're going to just make a problem. Um, yeah. yeah. But we have to start wrapping up shortly, so mm -hmm. how can listeners support you and other residents to stay at Barrack Beacon and, like, support other public housing residents and 
that sort of stuff just in general? Okay. Uh, first, be aware that the government is not building like for like. They're not building public housing. They're building community housing, which is a semi-privatised model. Mm. And something that's sort of worked on a small scale, but these places have blown up into great big landlords and it's not working. Yeah. So just be aware of that. Um, now, we have a petition which has just been presented to Parliament, um, just asking them to look at these plans and say, well, why not? Um, and because we just don't get responses. Like the Labor government has had this, um, and not just the government, but the Labor Party has had this sort of con concerted thing where they just won't respond to anybody. Yeah. Um, the other... So, one, they can sign the petition. It's on the Legislative Council website. Um, it's actually closed at the moment, but it's going to reopen. They can contact the Minister of Housing, Colin Brooks, and say, why aren't you looking at these plans? Why don't you want to say... Eight Save eighty-eight thousand for the taxpayer. Um, oh, sorry, eighty-eight million. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's a big difference, yeah. Few <laughs> <laughs> zeros there. Um, so I guess we also have a Facebook group um, that's just a public group that gets information out there, so they can either look at that or they can join it if they want to show support. What was the and name so of the group, sir? The Save group. Barrack Beacon. Save Barrack Beacon on Facebook. Yes. All right. Yes. All right, yes. So that that's just I've just started that. Well, we started that trying to counter the we are building energy efficient, sustainable, modern, mm. all the good words housing, yeah. um, which is the only thing the government will say, and they're not they're not building anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you so, said, they're just making holes in the ground and saying we might yes. come back to this. <laughs> or we might sell it off when we hope people have stopped paying attention. Yes. Who yes. knows? Well, that certainly could be one of the strategies. Because yeah. it certainly don't make, doesn't make sense of putting, you know, giving vulnerable people housing. No. It doesn't seem yeah. helpful at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks very much for joining us, Margaret. It's been good. Okay. Thank, thank yeah. you for More giving me the time. Right. Yeah. yeah, no, good on you. It's uh, yeah, it's it's impressive to see you standing staunch there and digging your heels in and yeah, yeah, standing yeah. up to the yeah. bastards. <laughs> well, they certainly are that. Yeah. So, yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Keep up the good work. Yeah. Take care, mate, and keep fighting okay. a good fight. Thank good talking you. to you. Bye. See ya. Bye. All right. Yes, and that is Margaret Kelly. Uh, one of uh, several residents remaining at the Barrack Beacon uh, public housing estate. Uh, and as Margaret mentioned, some of the other people there are not necessarily there as a protest, but because no alternative suitable housing has been found for them. Uh, it's really disturbing that uh, people are being cleared out of here. Um, vulnerable people are being cleared out without a proper place to go to. Yeah. And there is literally no urgency for this. There is no approved, you know... If, if they were going to demolish it and start building the new blocks, that would be maybe different, but you still need a proper, you know, alternative accommodation for everyone to get into. 
but they're not. As Margaret has said, they're just going to demolish it and leave a big hole in the ground for who knows how long. It is not urgent. There is no reason to be kicking these people out of their homes. Yeah, exactly. And it is, as again, as Margaret said, it is the people who are least able to live on their own or least able to move to a different place who are still at Barrack Beacon, um, aside from people who are still there as protest, who are being threatened with eviction because Housing Victoria couldn't find them a suitable place, not because they're refusing to leave or anything, which wouldn't justify it anyway, obviously, but because Housing Victoria just... I'm not allowed to swear on the radio, uh, but because Housing Victoria dropped the ball on it and have just decided to make it everyone else's fault, particularly the poor and vulnerable, as governments love to do. But we are we have hit the end of the show, so thanks, everybody, for joining us. Um, and <clears throat> if you want to help keep us going, you can go to greenleft.org.au slash subscribe or slash donate to give us your cash, um, or you can give your cash to... Uh, 3CR, 3CR yeah. as well. If you're not already a subscriber, please subscribe. Please yeah. keep this excellent beacon of, of staunch activist happenings kicking along. Yeah. And uh, and stick around because coming up next is Earth Matters. And then after that at 9 o'clock is left after breakfast with the significantly staunch and rather excellent Susanna Duffy. And Susanna might even be talking with the bag man and the BL from the bush. You're going to have to stick around and find out if that's what's happening. Uh, We've been Greenleaf Radio, and we'll catch you next Friday morning. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good one. Stay rad, as the notes say. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Zane. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Greenleaf Radio, brought to you by Greenleaf Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. Arise.